Earlier today I heard from Thailand that there's a very large gathering at the moment, monks and nuns and laymen, laywomen at our main monastery, uh, Wat Bapong, and it's uh, something that happens every year, or has been happening every year uh, since Ajahn Chah passed away as a way of marking the occasion. And I think the figure was yesterday was 11,000 people. And it is certainly a fitting way of remembering the teacher and the teachings that have generated so much benefit, that it's a community event. It's a a sign that I feel fittingly represents our teacher. When I was thinking earlier this morning about what stands out as I remember my time with Ajahn Chah and 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 seeing what has developed over the years since he's passed away. And what certainly one of the things that stands out is his community and how he how much emphasis he put on spiritual community and how he taught training in the context of community as a source of real benefit. And and it's not necessarily the case for all Dhamma teachers and many monasteries in Thailand where the interest and the emphasis is on the practice of Dhamma, not just study about Dhamma, but uh, cultivation and meditation. Although that's the emphasis, the lifestyle is very much one of concentrating on solitude. And some of the monasteries that I trained in or stayed in and the practice was to spend a very large part of your day on your own. And, but Ajahn Chah emphasized that group practice was important. And, and so there'd be morning and evening chanting, whether you liked it or not. There'd be every day sweeping the leaves, whether you liked it or not. And pulling water from the well communally, whether you liked it or not. Although I never had the conversation with him, I, I think I heard at one stage that he could have had uh, electricity installed in the monastery to pump the water, but he thought it was a good practice to to engage in this work together. And, and then when he had his temple built, he in fact had the, the main central Buddha image constructed as a standing Buddha image because he said, my monks meditate while they're working. And, and the point of that is, as maybe some of you will have heard, he's, he's famous for talking about how training in the context of community, it's like pebbles in the bottom of a stream that 
as they get tumbled around, their sharp edges get worn off and they become smooth and beautiful. And without that tumbling, the, the sharp edges can remain and not necessarily be something that can fit in anywhere else very easily. So he held that up as a training standard and and was uh, really emphatic that it was something that we applied ourselves to. And, and whereas in some monasteries, if you're certainly if you're a Western monk, it'd be the, quite likely that you'd be excused from various activities, or maybe you didn't have to develop the training and being an attendant, being an attendant to the teacher, where there are certain duties that you perform for the teacher and help make his life easier so that he can run the monastery. And in fact, I did hear from, um, from Wat Nana Chat, the, the um, branch monastery in Thailand where the Westerners go to train generally, and how this young monk had turned up there from another monastery where there had been an emphasis on solitary practice rather than communal practice. And, and when he was invited to take up the training opportunity to be the attendant to the abbot of this monastery, Wat, Wat Nana Chat, he, uh, he let it be known that he couldn't see the point of that. So well, why can't the abbot look after himself? He's quite young enough and healthy enough. But what does he need me to be cleaning his cootie for or washing his robes and so on? However, he, he did eventually give himself into the opportunity and, and then found out for himself that there's a lot of benefit in forgetting about what I want all the time. And this obsession that we can easily have with doing my practice uh, is, is not necessarily going to take us in the direction that we want to go. And certainly this was an aspect of Ajahn Chah's wisdom that he could see the benefit in not having every opportunity to do what we want when we want. In fact, quite the opposite. And and in the monastery that did mean a lot of communal activity and including communal work projects. And when we were building the temple there, I remember um, we would have our meal in the morning, something like eight or nine o'clock in the morning, and and then they would go down the line and hand out everybody got a vitamin pill to give us a little bit of extra energy, and then we would work from I don't know, maybe ten o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night, or even 11 o'clock, sometimes even 2 o'clock the following morning, constructing this. We used to carry soil to build a mound first to build the temple on top of, because he, he wanted the temple elevated so the, the air would pass through and the temple would be cool to sit in. And, and, but the work wasn't just work that you do because you want to build a temple, the work, the communal work, was practice itself. And it keeps bringing up, if we have the right understanding about it, it keeps bringing into mind how easy it is for us to forget the refuge. The refuge, the way to think about the refuge, is that the refuge is awareness itself. The world is all the activity, all the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions, that's the world. We get lost in the world, we forget the refuge. 
So the encouragement in whatever situation we're in is to try and at least conceptually remember the refuge and whatever helps us remember the refuge is Dhamma. Dhamma is not just what you find in books and that was I think, one reason why Ajahn Chah was so discouraging of our reading too many books. And he said because, because you know so much about stuff that you don't actually know anything. That we have so much information, there's so much activity in our minds and also activity in our hearts that we forget and get caught up in the activity, get lost in the activity, get lost in the views and even if the profound profound views and profound ideas and sublime feelings if we are drawn into them and we lose ourselves in them then we lose balance and we lose perspective and then we create suffering for ourselves and so the encouragement is to do what it takes to re- move in the direction of remembering the refuge as awareness itself. And so Ajahn Chah's view is that community practice helped with that. He could understand, of course, that you know, we all had strong conditioning to go in the other direction of you know, wanting to do our own thing. And The first time I'd been away on my own, staying at another monastery up in the north of Thailand in Chiang Rai and I came back and I was looking forward to having a chance to speak with Ajahn Chah and I don't remember all the details now, it's many years ago, it's probably nearly 40 years ago now but uh, as I recall it I think I think I was hoping Ajahn Chah would, would um, give me a new pair of sandals or something like that and I think that was my excuse for going to see him. Anyway I sat there underneath his kuti waiting for him to be free and hoping that I might be able to engage him in a conversation and and he did eventually everybody else had left and he turned to me and asked me what I'd been up to and I said where I'd been staying and and I was thinking that this might be a really rewarding pleasing exchange that we would have but all he had to say was well I suppose that's alright for you to do what you like doing now he wasn't criticising me per se, but he was pointing out that doing your own thing all the time is not necessarily going to release us out of our habits, in fact quite the opposite. And so community life can be a source of nourishment, even though it can be also a source of frustration, strong frustration. It can also be a source of nourishment. It depends on how we view it. So a lot of Ajahn Chah's talks were helping direct us to consider the views that we held about living together. Do we just see it as something we put up with so we can get what we want? And this opportunity to do our practice and on our own terms. Recently I was speaking with a young monk who shared with me a really beautiful story of how his view of community life had changed totally unexpectedly, completely out of the blue. He and another monk had been out, this is in one of our other monasteries here in England, and the two of them had been out together on morning arms round and, and uh, 
some local chap had come up and engaged them in conversation and about this and that and talking about what's happening in society and commenting on things like the disintegration of society and so on. And, and then after a long conversation or perhaps monologue, he came around actually asking, well, what are you doing? Why, why are you getting around doing what you're doing like that? And so this young monk found himself suddenly commenting, he said, well, I live like this because I want to live in community and I want to contribute to community. And took himself by surprise. And he felt it, he meant it, but he hadn't anticipated it. And later on when he stopped to think about what he would have expected himself to say was, well, I live like this so that I can actually take responsibility for myself and develop a practice so that I'm not contributing to the problems of the world or something along those lines. But the shift that took place, not just in that single comment about I, I want to live in community and contribute to a community harmony, the shift that took place in his view was tremendously significant. And it wasn't just he that noticed it, but others around him noticed he you know, became a very pleasant person to have around. Because what moved for him was the emphasis away from thinking like, well, I'll do what I have to do in this community so that I can develop my practice to this, man, this community matters to me. I am part of this community and how I am in this community helps define the community. If I'm always thinking like, well, I'll get these doing the dishes out of the way or cleaning the brass out of the way or or sweeping the path out of the way so that I can go and do my practice on my own. If I'm always thinking like that, I'm never really all here. I'm never really part of the community. And the shift, the insight, the, the new perspective changed his whole attitude towards practice. And instead of trying to get over the thing that he was doing, he found that he wanted to do the thing that he was doing. Instead of well put up with cleaning the sweeping the hall so that I can go back and make a cup of tea and then sit meditation how well can I clean the hall or if it's my task to ring the bell at such and such a time how well can I ring the bell how accurately can I turn up on time and ring the bell so that it helps the community and once again it wasn't just an idea, but it was a shift in relationship to community which freed him from a burden. So this is something like what Ajahn Chah was talking about when he would say, you know, have you surrendered yet or not? Uh, so long as we're, as I expect we would all be familiar with, and the, so long as we're entertaining ideas and perceptions that I am going to be okay when I get enlightened or when I turn into a new improved version of me in the future, when I am more compassionate, when I am more forgiving, someone better than I am now out there in the future. So long as we're always engaged in that kind of thinking, then we're not really doing what we're doing. We're missing out. 
And so community life can be a nourishment. Yes, it can be a challenge, but uh, from Ajahn Chah's perspective, it's a really constructive challenge. How we, how we meet the challenges of life, whether they're constructive or lead to disintegration or further confusion, surely depends on how we view those challenges. So community is definitely, at least when I think about my life with Ajahn Chah, one of the really significant aspects of his, his teaching and the emphasis. Also was the, in fact, when I was thinking about this this morning, the, the first thing that came to my mind wasn't community, but the first thing that came to my mind was daring. And I remember hearing a report of a conversation. This was uh, Warapanyo. He was asking Ajahn Chah, what is it that makes you so different? You know, there's tens of thousands of monks in China, but what makes you different? And Ajahn Chah's response to that was very straightforward. He said, I was more daring than the others. And the others weren't particularly daring. And what he was talking about, I would suggest, was that he was daring to make that kind of effort that's required to remember the refuge. Instead of following the momentum of being drawn along by worldliness, even when it's ostensibly spiritual worldliness, thinking about Dhamma, thinking about how we might improve the monastery and make it a better monastery and, and and indulging in opinions and preferences with regards to the people that we live with or the world that we live in. Maybe some of our views and opinions are very clever and maybe tremendously clever. But if we are still defined by our being identified as the activity, then we're going to be suffering accordingly. The invitation that that Ajahn Chah and all the great teachers have given us is to let go of that identity, let go of being identified as the activity of the world and find identity as awareness itself. Not me being identified with awareness, that's still activity, but making an effort to surrender all clinging clinging to objects, clinging to ideas, clinging to perceptions, clinging to feelings, sensations, agreeable and disagreeable. All the momentum of clinging, the Buddha said, conspires to create confusion and suffering. Now, we can't just suddenly stop it, even if we get that message, even if that message makes sense to us and rings true, we can't just as an act of will stop it. Mm. We could try, we could cling to the idea that clinging causes suffering and then try to not cling, but obviously that's not going to do it. Mm. Well, I say obviously, but <laughs> we can still spend a lot of time trying to make it happen that way. So how do we make ourselves susceptible to the insight that brings about letting go. That's the kind of daring that Ajahn Chah was engaging in. Daring to do whatever it takes. Like, of course, in the life of living as a monk, he was exercising the 
spiritual techniques that you know, eating minimal food, sleeping minimal amount, talking minimal amount, living really, really simply. That's the basic principle of this life. And how, to, how simple can we make it? Not as a judgment of all the other things that are going on in the world, but are they necessary? Are they helpful? Do they really support the insight that leads to letting go? So Ajahn Chah's interest was, what do I need to do so as to be susceptible to the kind of insight that leads to letting go? And as a young monk, he hadn't necessarily been trained in keeping the rules strictly, so he decided he would keep the rules strictly. As a young monk, he, he handled money like a lot of other monks, but then he decided, well, the rules say monks are not supposed to handle money, not supposed to hold rights over money. So he gave all up all his money and committed himself to cultivating the spiritual faculties, not just cultivating a conceptual understanding of the Dhamma, which he had already done to a reasonable degree, but cultivating the spiritual faculties themselves. And, and in so doing, daring to go against the current of me and my way, which again is another aspect of saying the community life, which can be really, really frustrating. But instead of seeing the frustration as, a, as an obstruction, use the frustration to highlight the tendency we have to resist. And the resistance that we have is the obstruction to reality. So Ajahn Chah really wanted to see all resistance to reality. And so what did he do? He dared to go against the conditioned preferences and as such became a great ascetic monk. Now, that's not, it's not everybody's cup of tea. It's not going to work for everybody. But as an example, it can highlight the fallacy that's so often put around. Well, that's basically normal for much of the world, which is that I will find contentment, I will find what I'm looking for when I get what I want. Gratification is the solution. Contentment comes with getting those things that I am interested in getting. Ajahn Chah was interested in going against that momentum. And he pointed out it takes daring because it does get very scary. It can get very, very scary. Those that have read some of the translated, transcribed talks of Ajahn Chah would probably be familiar with the extent to which he went to put himself under pressure so as to see the habits that he had, see the preferences as preferences. So only in the seeing of preferences as preferences can we really meet ourselves there, receive ourselves there, and then let go of ourselves. If we don't really see them, then we're not going to be able to receive them, meet them, let go of them. So also, one of the characteristics of Ajahn Chah's being, his teaching, was it takes daring to follow a path towards awakening. 
certainly there are times when we need to work hard to make ourselves feel okay with life on a very basic conventional level. Like relaxation. Sometimes I talk about the three stages of training as relaxation, concentration and transformation. Certainly there is a time for learning how to be relaxed to undo some of the really rigid habits of obstruction and that we have locked into our muscles and our nervous system. Certainly also there's a time when time to learn how to discipline attention and and train the mind with collectedness and for those who have an affinity with that to be able to enjoy the delight that comes with such a well-disciplined attention. But relaxation and concentration are not the goal. The goal is how to remember the refuge as awareness itself so as to not get caught up in anything. No matter how delightful, joyous and wonderful life can be, we spoil it when we get lost in it, when we cling. So what does it take for us to let go of those habits that keep taking us in the opposite direction of going for refuge? It takes daring. And a third thing which came to my mind this morning when I was thinking about what stood out in my memory of Ajahn Chah's life, and the third thing was his adaptability. He was the opposite of a spiritual technician. I've often mentioned how when he was asked, what technique do you teach? Do you teach Samatha? Do you teach Vipassana? Do you teach Anapanasati? Do you teach Satipatthana? And what's your teaching style? And Ajahn Chah said, my teaching style is frustration. Toraman in Thai. Well, of course he wasn't wasn't trying to be unpleasant and make people's lives difficult. Uh, not at all. Exactly the opposite. But he did realize that where we get stuck, where we cling, we create obstructions. And so he wanted to hold up a mirror. And, and so a lot of his teaching from the external level appeared well in fact somebody accused him once you strike me as being very inconsistent you say one thing in one situation and something else in another and and that's when he he mentioned about how for me it's like being down the end of the road and I see somebody coming towards me and they're about to go off and fall in the ditch on the left and so I say go right and then somebody else is coming along and they're about to go off onto the right and fall into the ditch and so I say go left to me it's the same thing from somebody else's perspective it might be inconsistent it does take being creative and one of his teachers had this expression about if the, if the obstructions come high you duck under them if they come low you jump over them and this is again not the characteristic of all teachers there as probably all of us are familiar with different teaching style where the idea of like there's one way there's one system, one technique. And Ajahn Chah was very much the opposite of that. 
takes creativity and the ability to adapt and, and change and, and not, not just on the level of spiritual disciplines or techniques but also physically and I remember hearing how when he first came to, to Britain he was at the airport in Bangkok and Ajahn Chai had the habit of eating of chewing betel nut which you might be familiar with it's a by our standards, a rather vulgar habit. There's kind of blood red juice dribbling down your chin and then from time to time being spat out into a spittoon. Well, in that culture, it's very normal and and he used to enjoy chewing betel nut and, and presumably you get a high off it. It's a lot of a caffeine buzz or something. But he was told that you don't do betel nut in Britain. That's not okay. And so, yeah, he just handed over his betel nut in there at the airport and he adjusted and there was time when he was in England as well and there was one occasion where he was visiting the parents of one of the young monks in Thailand and went to the door and the, the father opened the door and Ajahn Chah greeted him, stretched his hand out and shook his hand which is not something that you would uh, see certainly a, a senior monk of Ajahn Chah's calibre normally doing but you know, that's what's called for then you adjust according to time and place and that ability to adjust, that adaptability, and not clinging to a fixed position. We all have these tendencies to seek security by clinging. And even once we embark on the spiritual journey and, and we're interested in letting go and freedom and awakening, and, and yet these habits, if we're not careful these old habits of clinging, these deep habits of clinging, sometimes very subtle habits of clinging, can creep in and just create further obstructions. And maybe practicing for many years and just wonder why we're feeling flat or half dead and losing enthusiasm. Well, maybe the place we need to look is our habits of clinging. What are we clinging to? So certainly this was my impression of living with Ajahn Chah that in myriad creative ways, very human ways, ways that felt very relevant, not just ways that seemed to be relevant for Thai monks. It seemed as the evidence was clear that he also was able to relate to people from completely different cultures and ability to adjust according to what was needed and as such it sets a very fine example I would say for us in our practice that as we give ourselves more completely into this path of practice, into this opportunity to keep checking to see is there an increase interest in going for refuge, truly going for refuge to awareness itself or are we shoring ourselves up with ideas like okay I've got that sorted now or I'm going to be okay now or soon I will be okay if I just crack the jhanas or, or do some other special practice mm. so thank you very much I hope this contemplation is of benefit for your practice Namayandamagatayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasadukarangadamasayasad